It's Wednesday, June 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the unfortunate effects of shutting down the economy for months to limit the spread of coronavirus was that there was no revenue going back into local governments. As a result, budgets have been upended, and now over 700 cash-strapped cities have to stop plans to repair roads, water systems, and other investments. Tony Rahm, business reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, White House officials are discussing a plan to launch an in-depth review of the CDC and its missteps in handling the coronavirus pandemic, including an early failure to deploy working test kits. Part of the examination would also look into the state-by-state death toll to tally those that died of coronavirus rather than other causes. Adam Kankren, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for why there might be more scrutiny on the CDC. Finally, what is it like going to a restaurant now? As the country continues to reopen and people are getting back to normal, there is a new way of dining out. Employees are required to wear masks, have their temperatures taken, and there's almost nothing on the table except for hand sanitizer. Sarah Needleman, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for changes to restaurant dining. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. But Congress wrote it in such a way that cities and states couldn't tap this money to close their budget deficits. So you essentially had a situation where cities and states are saying they need about $1 trillion just to break even. Joining us now is Tony Rahm, business reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tony. Hey, thanks for having me. We're talking about reopening the country back up after the coronavirus shutdowns. Obviously, a lot of businesses are starting to get going. Restaurants obviously are opening. Uh, People are returning to the workplace. But one interesting thing that also happened because of this is it wasn't only just people and businesses that had to experience this. The governments, cities and local governments themselves also had a big shortage of cash. You know, they weren't making a lot of tax revenues during all this shutdown time. And right now there's over 700 cities that had plans to do a lot of infrastructure repair, things like that. And they're having to put a lot of that on hold because there's just no money there anymore in their budgets. Tony, tell us a little bit about this. You know, when we think of government, we often tend to forget that governments are major employers. They're major spenders. They don't just have a whole lot of people on staff. They put a bunch of money out into the economy when they engage in major construction projects, for example. So the coronavirus has done to government much as it's done to business. It's depleted some of the revenues. It's forced them to make really painful cuts. Except in this case, the effect of all this is to reduce government services and to potentially put more burden on local residents. We could see situations as evidenced in some of the data that we reported today where people are waiting longer to get government services. They're waiting longer to see calls answered from first responders, things of that nature, because so many of these cities and states are being forced to make cuts that they otherwise weren't planning to make. And one of the biggest expenditures that these cities and local governments had during the pandemic, as we saw a lot of reporting, was personal protective equipment and contracting with disinfecting services to keep public buildings clean, whatever it is. These were some big expenditures that they were going through. And now when it comes time to get back to business to do these other projects that they had planned for, there's just no cash there. And for the PPE purchases, as you mentioned, there was money from Washington to help them cover the costs of that. State and cities weren't left out, you know, in the wind there to kind of suffer and pick up the tab for something they weren't expecting to pay. It's for this whole universe of other expenses that cities and states are having trouble coming up with the cash to make ends meet. 
So one of the things that Congress did, for example, was it passed this $2 trillion law known as the CARES Act. And that law had in it a bucket of money that cities and states could tap to pay for some of the expenses of the coronavirus. But Congress wrote it in such a way that cities and states couldn't tap this money to close their budget deficits. So you essentially had a situation where cities and states are saying they need about $1 trillion just to break even. That's a massive hole that they're going to have to fill. But even the money that's been appropriated by Congress can't be put to use here. And so this is sort of the stress. This is the challenge that a lot of these government regulators across the country are facing now. You know, it's how to balance their budgets because they're not allowed to run a deficit, while at the same time not making such gigantic cuts that they're putting their own residents in harm's And even from that program, you know, we're getting some of this information from the National League of Cities. They found that 69 percent of municipalities have not received any money from some of these federal programs. So, I mean, that puts them in this other predicament where some of that money they were counting on, they still haven't even gotten. For that money in particular, we're talking about one specific fund. It's $150 billion fund that was authorized under the CARES Act. Cities and states have received other funding as a result of the law, different accounts. But for this $150 billion bucket that could be used for things like personal protective equipment, a lot of cities are having a hard time accessing that aid. And that's largely because the law was written in such a way that creates so many levels of bureaucracy that a city literally cannot get a hold of the money. It's in the hands of a state. And the states sometimes have been either slow or reluctant to kind of dole that cash out because they have needs of their own that they have to fill. And so really what all this does is it provides the latest affirmation that cities and states need the help of Washington. They say that they need about a trillion dollars of help in the form of a new congressional stimulus package. But at the same time, Democrats and Republicans here in the nation's capital have been warring over this. There are a lot of Republicans who, despite all the indications, despite the evidence, don't believe it's necessary to put some of this funding out there to help local governments make ends meet. Where does the president stand on this? Because I've been seeing, you know, just headlines that the president supports another stimulus package. Is that just for individuals or does he support it for municipalities as well? More often than not, he has used this as a political attack. He has claimed erroneously that the cities and states that are having the most trouble are Democrat-led and that the reason they're having trouble is because they have pensions for government employees that for a long time have not been fully and sufficiently financed. Now, there's some truth. Pension troubles are a serious thing for a lot of cities and states. They're working through those challenges. But it's important to remember that every city, every state is dealing with some version of this, red or blue. It doesn't matter who leads the local government. There has been broad concern that the money just isn't there and that more help is necessary. And so Trump and the administration have sounded a rather negative note on these things, but it remains unclear if the administration might be willing to compromise under a certain set of conditions or if perhaps the administration gets other elements in some upcoming coronavirus aid package. But again, it's important to put all this in context. Democrats and Republicans aren't really negotiating on much of anything right now. The broader contours of any coronavirus aid package, whether it includes or doesn't include state and local aid, all of that is in flux right now. So it's still pretty early here in the process. Tony Rahm, business reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. CDC was built to really focus on five or six core capabilities, tracking and responding to infectious diseases, 
And over the years, it's kind of straight and its research has expanded and it's gotten a little bit distracted. And so that's why when it came time to really ramp up the response, there were slip ups early on. Joining us now is Adam Kankren, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Adam. It's good to be with you. I wanted to talk about the White House's response to coronavirus. Right now, they're getting a lot of heat. Obviously, we're starting to see rising cases across the country. But one of the targets that they might be focusing on, the White House, is the Center for Disease Control and their response to all of this. As we know, early on, it was tough to get testing off the ground because of some problems with testing kits that the CDC was putting together. They were contaminated. And then beyond that, there was a couple of missteps with uh, you don't need to wear face masks. You do need to wear face masks. So right now, White House officials might be putting a target on the CDC. Adam, tell us a little bit more about that. These are discussions that are going on among White House aides in the West Wing about doing what they've called a performance evaluation of the Centers for Disease Control. And the CDC is our central public health authority. And this would serve a couple purposes. One, there's genuine belief throughout the White House and in some of the health department as well that the CDC has kind of strayed from its core mission. And this was kind of what resulted in some of the mistakes early on, that the CDC was built to really focus on five or six core capabilities, tracking and responding to infectious diseases. And over the years, it's kind of straight and its research has expanded and it's gotten a little bit distracted. And so that's why when it came time to really ramp up the response, there were slip ups early on. On the other hand, part of the motivation here is that cases are rising. The Trump administration's response has faced criticism from pretty much all comers, from Democrats, from Joe Biden, the main Democratic rival in 2020, from within the president's own administration for being too slow on the uptake and essentially not equivalent enough to meet kind of the challenge of the pandemic. And so now what you have is some of these aides from a political standpoint looking for a place to pin the blame. They've already blamed China and the World Health Organization for the slow early response. And now the CDC has kind of come up as another agency that they can point to and say part of the problems with the response was based on this one agency here, this public health authority. How much traction would that get with the public, though? For the most part, I feel like the CDC is a trusted part of the government. That's one of the concerns and one of the discussion points is whether the voters, whether the public would really buy the idea that, you know, the pandemic response, all of its faults and mistakes are the result of one kind of bureaucratic, obscure, wonky agency. The problem with the pandemic is that it is a national crisis, right? And so that has necessarily intertwined not just the CDC and Health and Human Services Department, but FEMA, the White House in particular, there's really just kind of no way of separating out the roles that each of these agencies had and then assigning blame. So there's a concern that, look, China, it's easier to kind of pin blame on them because they have a history of kind of obscuring how diseases and how emergencies have gone over there. World Health Organization is kind of far away. People don't know much about it. But the CDC is naturally trusted. The CDC is known as kind of a place that's centered on science. And so there's a little bit of skepticism of will voters actually buy the idea that this was largely their fault. Now, we're still going through the uh, pandemic. Obviously, there's a long way to go. So there's room for a lot more mistakes, both on the part of the CDC or the administration itself. But I started off talking about some of those missteps that the CDC had already, specifically with those testing kits that they were making early on when coronavirus is hitting the United States. Tell us about that and any other missteps that we've seen so far. The one you mentioned is really the big one. So this was way back in February 
When the coronavirus had just kind of started to become a threat in the U.S., we were worried about community spread. It was a quaint time back then. And the CDC started to ramp up work on creating a diagnostic test, essentially a coronavirus test. The first batch they created actually really, really quickly in only a few weeks. But when they distributed it, a lot of those tests didn't end up working. They came back with false positives or false negatives, and they just weren't reliable. What ended up happening, and there was an internal investigation that was released last week detailing a little bit of this, is that at some point along the way, these tests got contaminated in the CDC lab. And so when the CDC shipped them out, most of them didn't work. And that delay allowed the coronavirus to spread within the U.S. undetected for weeks and really kind of hampered the early efforts to scale up you know, our testing capacity. So that is really kind of the central thing. That's really what put CDC on the radar and will put a target on CDC early on. That said, there were some others. If you remember also back in February, Nancy Messonnier, top CDC official, was briefing reporters in late February, and she was the, really the first official to say, this is going to be bad. This is going to be an outbreak. Everybody should prepare for schools to close, for businesses to close, et cetera, et cetera. And that was something that the White House was not ready to come out and say yet. The president at the time was coming back from an overseas trip in India. Larry Kudlow, who's one of the top economic advisors, had that same day just gone out and said that the disease was contained. And so it was a bit of an embarrassment to a White House that had no idea that the CDC was going to go out there and essentially alarm everybody. And those kind of communication mistakes have kind of continued. There was a point at which Robert Redfield, the CDC director, said he was really, really worried about a second wave in the fall. He had to come back in front of the White House press corps the next day and kind of walk back those remarks a little bit. So it's one of those agencies that's viewed as stocks with career officials, people who are not political appointees and people who the White House views with a little bit of suspicion because they weren't brought on with the president's election. They're not necessarily devout followers of the quote-unquote Trump agenda. Adam Kankerin, healthcare reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They are spreading out the tables. They're only letting a limited number of people in at a time. It's the kind of restaurant where you would normally go up to the cash register to pay. They're separating, putting, you know, a six feet space in between where people can stand. Joining us now is Sarah Needleman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. It is my pleasure to be here. We are reopening the country. Stores are opening back up. People are getting out to try to get out to do what they were doing before restaurants. It's one of the things that I've just been so curious about how they're doing and how they're rolling things out. And as they've been opening, we're starting to see a few things that, you know, everybody uses the term, the new normal. And the new normal right now is a lot of hand sanitizer on the tables and not much else. Sarah, tell us a little bit about how restaurants are reopening right now. Sure. Well, a lot of uh, establishments now have disposable dishes and glasses or their table fixtures like ketchup bottles, salt and pepper shakers. Those things are gone. I mean, you can request them. Some places just have outdoor dining available. There may be limited reservations because they're trying to space things out. Menus may be one-time use or you might even scan on your phone with a barcode to get the menu. So people are adjusting to these different changes and it's strange, but it's right. what, you know, the restaurants are doing to try and keep people as safe as possible. One of the kind of anecdotal stories that you shared in your article, there's all these new protocols that provides plenty of opportunity for patients to commit a faux pas. 
in your story, there was a family who was like, oh, can I get these utensils? Oh, can I get the ketchup? Oh, can I get the salt? And they were all separate occasions that they had to make the waitress go back and forth to go do this. These little small things are just kind of make you feel Mm -hmm. weird at the table. When you first sit down, you don't realize they're necessarily gone. It's just something that isn't quite obvious per se. So you find yourself having to ask for them. And the uh, faux pas is just really not asking for everything at once, which takes a little bit of getting used to. One thing that I have not noticed, but I do read a lot about, is taking temperatures of patrons before they go. There are some restaurants that are taking the temperature of guests who come in and or, well, in most cases, they're doing up their employees, but the guests as well. Even myself this morning, I just dropped off my child at a indoor summer camp and they took her temperature before she came in. So that's becoming a pretty common thing for uh, businesses to do. And that's because if you have a fever, that's a common sign of the coronavirus. How have seating capacity limits been impacting the restaurants? Obviously, in a business like the restaurant industry, you want to turn over as many tables as you can. You want to get as many people in there dining. Right now, it's the opposite. They are spreading out the tables. They're only letting a limited number of people in at a time. It's the kind of restaurant where you would normally go up to the cash register to pay. They're separating, putting you know a six-feet space in between where people can stand. So you can imagine with all those changes that the number of people that could be in a restaurant or a bar at any given time is definitely a lot smaller than what it used to be. You know, we've been talking about the podcast, kind of wearing face masks, and a lot of different settings has been this big divide. A lot of people don't want to. A lot of people say you should. In the restaurant world, how do you think they're handling this? So this piece I spoke to mainly patrons and the people I spoke to for the most part were fine with wearing masks up until the point where they're going to eat because exactly, apparently you yeah. can't eat with a mask on. Or many of them just didn't, but they appreciate the fact that the server did wear a mask and the uh, restaurant staff that made them feel more comfortable. But like I said, you can eat with a mask on. So for the most part, or drink, uh, people are going to have to take off their masks to do that anyway. And so it really comes down to the wait staff, for the most part, wearing masks. And if they're not, and if someone's not comfortable, certainly they don't have to go to that restaurant. But many of them are doing that. It's hard to say exactly how many, but for all the interviews I did, that was a common occurrence. Obviously, everybody wants to get back to work. They want to get back to normal. Have you seen any or heard any of uh, pushback maybe from servers and other employees at various restaurants saying that uh, they need more safety protocols, anything like that? Like I said, I spoke to mostly patrons for this piece as opposed to wait staff. You can imagine that wearing a mask for several hours while you're working, if it's hot, that can be difficult. But that is, in many cases, the requirement. These restaurants are requiring their staff to wear them, and they're asking the patrons to wear masks if they're walking through the dining room, maybe not necessarily at their tables, but there are a lot of rules. When you walk up to a restaurant, there may be a board outside saying whether or not you need to wear a mask or what parts you may need to wear a mask or certain areas you can walk, the certain areas you can't. They're trying to make it so the traffic goes only in one direction. So you're not passing by people going the opposite way. So you may be asked to snake around a building to get from point A to point B. But these are all steps that the restaurants are doing to make employees feel safe and customers And that's what they feel they need to do right now. And so that's what they're doing. Sarah Needleman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. And tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.